Everybody, 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 drop your stop, 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 Hi everyone, it's Evan Ross Katz. You are listening to Drop Your Buffs. I do not have my co-host Sean with me today. Sean is out this week, but fear not, we have quite possibly the best constellation. I don't even want to call her a constellation. She's the best get we could get to help co-host today. She is the great Eliza Orleans two-time Survivor player, Survivor Vanuatu, one of Sean and I's favorite seasons, Survivor Micronesia, the fandoms, I would say favorite season. I mean, who doesn't love Micronesia? Eliza, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to be here with you. I love you. I love your podcast. I love Survivor. This is going to be so much fun. I, I too cannot wait. So let, before we get into the episode itself, I just wanted to ask where you are netting out on season 42 overall. So far, so good. I mean, I really like it. I think the casting has been excellent. Like this cast is just entertainment to the max. I really love almost everyone on it. Um, and the couple that I don't, I kind of love to hate. Uh, and I think the twists, which I despise from season 41, have been less intrusive this season somehow, yes. have been less annoying to me. Uh, I mean, I still hate a, how hard they're saying the show is when I, I'm like, okay, you're on the merge and it's day 15. Like, go, go, Go F yourselves. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but um, I'm like, am I supposed to curse on this podcast? I you always should curse. ask at the oh, beginning. Curse. Okay. No, 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 curse. I'm like, that's, you know, that's me. I, my most famous line on Survivor ever. I got bleeped out. So, you know, <laughs> it's part of it's part of my vernacular. But I, I'm really enjoying this season uh, a ton. How about you? I'm really enjoying it. I think that I grew tired of, I, I sometimes grow just tired of Survivor. And I think after 41, I felt a little bit like, I'm not sure if this show still has legs. And then 42 came along and I'm like, I'm so here for it. It sort of got me re-energized for the show. Um, and especially coming off of, I think we've had a number of really good seasons. I really obviously loved 37, like so many people. I loved 39. I'm one of those people huh. that really enjoyed 39. I obviously I thought the show 40. was over. I thought it was done forever. Right. And, and 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 here we are and, and we're alive and we're kicking. Now, let me ask you this because, you know, you mentioned uh, the show not being as challenging in terms of, you know, the length of time they're on the island. Last week, we got Jeff get giving the losing team uh, Rice as a consolation prize. And as someone who is an old school player in which there were no freebies given out, how did you feel about that? We never had one grain of rice on either of my seasons. Not one, not once, ever. And so the fact that they're like, oh, this season's so hard, we don't have rice. I'm like, what? Like we had to eat, I mean, I lost 20 pounds on my first season. People were like, like my hair was falling out. We all got Giardia. Like we were so sick. I don't think that these new school contestants can even fathom how hard Survivor was back in the day if they think this is hard. Well, what do you make of Jeff seeming to present the game as though it is harder than ever? Because it's one thing for the contestants to say that they have nothing to compare it to. But Jeff knows how challenging this game once was and seems really intent on making the audience believe that the show is harder than ever. 
Jeff is Survivor's ultimate hype man. Like he is. he is like Survivor hype man to the max. This is the this is the job that he's had. Don't forget for the last you know multiple decades. And if the show ends, like what what does that mean for Jeff Probst? It's not like he can just go host another show. Like he hosted Rock and Roll Jeopardy before this. This is not someone who you know has like a a, a future career path if Survivor is over. I mean, no offense to Jeff. Like he doesn't need a future career path. Like he has he's a great life. Sat. Um, but he, he, I think he, he tries to engage the audience. This is going to be the best season ever. He says that every season, you know, it's like the most dramatic rose ceremony yet. Like this is how these shows go. So him saying it's the hardest season, it doesn't actually validate it being the hardest season. Jeff knows full well that it is not the hardest season. Right. It's like what you're saying. It's like, he's doing his job. He's playing the role of a hype man. So listen, we could talk for hours about Vanuatu and Micronesia. We absolutely want to have you back on this pod to deep dive on that. But we're here today to get into 42. So I'm going to start with the, the top of the episode and we'll work our way through it. So we open this episode going back to the newly merged tribe and we get a lot of scenes of damage control. You know, people talking to the people that they kind of were in with, but they didn't vote with. And then we get this moment with Marianne, which I thought was really touching her talking about feeling like she's back in elementary school and feeling too weird to be a part of the cool kids as she says what did you make of that moment with Marianne so I have been unequivocally obsessed with Marianne since moment one of episode one of this season I think she is one of the most extraordinary people we've ever been fortunate enough to be graced with on our television I adore her and I also deeply deeply relate to her and I actually took note of the quote that she said uh, because it really stuck with me too. She said, I'm too weird to be part of the cool kids. I suck. There's something wrong with me. That's why people don't want to work with me. And I felt that. I felt that on my season. I totally understand it. Being left out of a vote sucks. Um, and I just adore her and am glad that, you know, she – she has like is figuring out how to utilize her outsider status, her weirdness, her emotions to get farther in this game. Absolutely. I just want to say you coming into this recap with notes. I mean, I am in awe. I mean, as someone who I mean, it's usually Sean that's taking the notes and I'm sort of just weighing in. And today I had to make notes in preparation and I was like, this is hard. And here you are coming in and just like whipping out the quotes. So I, I certainly appreciate it. So we your girl, the- your girl loves a good prep. You know, your girl yeah, loves yeah. to be prepared. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's why she is who she is. Like, hello. Um, I want to ask about the next day because we we get this scene. The I mean, what is perceived as the following day? Maybe it's a few days later, and it's it's Mike and he's watching Omar pray. Mike talks about the fact that he's not been exposed to the Islamic religion before, and he's really enjoying watching Omar's prayer process and getting to know him. And Mike sort of has this revelation. It's something that we've seen happen on many seasons of Survivor where someone is exposed to a new culture or a new identity that they haven't previously been around and they sort of have this aha moment and say, wow, we are all so similar. And I wanted to get your reaction to that, but I wanted to first say, I recently interviewed Harvey Firestein, and one thing he said that I think is is relevant to this moment is he said, you know what? We're all different. And, and part of the good thing is actually recognizing how different we all are and appreciating those differences. And so 
I'm not dragging Mike. I understand where that thought pattern comes from, this idea that we're all the same. But what I couldn't help but take away from that moment is actually, no, you're not the same. And that's the beauty of the human experience. And so I do think there's something, I don't want to say it's backwards, right? It's just a different lens to put on on the conversation. But I did find it a little antiquated, that sort of viewpoint overall the same, when in reality, it's like, I think that scene conveyed, if anything, how dissimilar they are. But the di- it, within those dissil- dissimilarities, if you will, uh, one can find uh, ways to relate and learn and grow sort of their idea of humanity. Anyway, what did you make of that scene? I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that it's such a throwback because Survivor has been bringing together people who are different since season one. If you think about like the OG different two people, it's it's Richard and Rudy. It's, you know, Richard Hatch and and Rudy Bosch, who is, you know, this is this is a a war vet and a gay man. And like the two of them are having this almost this like kind of parallel conversation. And I don't think we talk about enough how much Richard Hatch like really changed the the viewpoint, you know, all these ways in which he opened people's minds 20 some years ago. Um, and and I think that it is good to see, again, like someone's mind being opened, someone who might not have ever met someone of a different religion. Um, you know, that wasn't, I don't think shown as much on my season, but there were people on my season who were like, wait, 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 before we eat this coconut, we have to thank the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I was like, oh, actually, I'm Jewish. And someone on my season said to me, oh, I met a Jew once. She was real nice. And I was like, oh, yeah. And they're like, so is Jesus not your savior? And I'm like, well, so Judaism, it, you know, and and it was, you know, there there is a very wide like chasm. It's not, we're not all the same. We're all very different, but it is kind of an interesting um kind of social experiment that's that survivor puts us in where you do get to meet people who are very different um and i actually think that while you know maybe it wasn't the strongest scene for mike it was the second time we've now seen this for omer and he is one of the people who i think is getting the strongest winner edits uh this season Absolutely. And I think if anything, that really became apparent in the last episode, and then it was sort of ingrained even more in this one. I mean, in addition to the fact that he seems to be in a good spot in the game, I think Omar's also a really good narrator for the season in terms of explaining to us, the audience, sort of the minutia of the game. Um, and yeah, I think that that scene, it was certainly, uh, it, it endeared me to Mike in a way because I appreciate his openness to learning about new people. I think that there are, we've seen people come on this show and like from night one, they're like, I'm not sleeping with the tribe. I'm going to go and be a loner. And I think the idea of like wanting to understand people is a really important aspect to this game. If you come in here not wanting to learn about different people from different walks of life, you're going to be at a disadvantage. It's a social game. Um, So then we go to the reward challenge. We have the return of Jeff talking to the camera uh, for the second time this season, something that was utilized a lot in 41 and then pared down in 42. Where do you net out on Jeff Probst doing direct to camera uh, commentary or, or explanations? You know, it's not really my favorite part because the the reason why they cast these 
contestants, you know, that we go through this like very rigorous casting process is because of how excellent each one of them is and how, I mean, we've we j- already talked about what a great narrator Omer is. Like it, it's like there are people who can explain what's happening. And yeah, we got to have some of the behind the scenes from Jeff, but don't need two, con- two Jeff confessionals in one episode. Yeah. And he goes on to explain the fact that they have uh, they have stored away uh, the, beware, the beware advantage again. And he says that he will not only be surprised, but a little bit disappointed if the advantage is not found. Do you think had Drea not found the advantage, they would have aired Jeff saying that? Because I felt like that was preempting us to the inevitable. There would have been no point in him saying it if it wasn't found. They would have cut it. And, and moving ahead a little bit, we, you know, we get this moment in which uh, Marianne is not selected. It's a 5-5. Five, five. Only 10 people can participate in the challenge. Someone has to sit out. Marianne picks the gray rock. Drea says, you know what? I don't really like the reward. The reward is peanut butter and jelly and, and chips. Mary, uh, so Drea says, I'll sit out. Marianne, you can participate in the challenge. Drea explains that the reason for her sitting out is that she doesn't really like peanut butter and jelly and chips, which, first of all, I cannot understand that for the life of me. No. But... Um, in my mind, I was like, Drea's sitting out because she's aware of what we at home are all aware of, which is the fact that on that sit-out bench, we've watched this show before. It didn't just begin in season 41 that they did this. Did you believe her? Because she, she said in the confessional, she reiterated the fact that like the, the reason she t- chose to sit out was not you know some uh, kind gesture towards Marianne. It was not because she thought there was going to be an advantage. It was simply she didn't want the food. Do you believe her? So... The weird thing about Survivor is that you can say one thing to Mm. people and then you can kind of use your confessional where no one else can hear you speak uh, to explain why you really did something or how, you know, it's it's kind of your opportunity to, to contradict something that happened in the game. And so the fact that she said in her confessional where there's no reason to, to, misrepresent that in any way that she just happened not to like peanut butter and jelly. I was like, wow, well, how lucky is that? You know, she could have said, yeah, I said I didn't like peanut butter and jelly, but the real reason I sat out was because I didn't think it behooved me to participate. I thought there might be an advantage. I thought that maybe I would curry favor with Marianne. Whatever the the reason would be, she had an opportunity to explain. And they showed us her explanation, which was the same as what she said. So, right. you know, I guess that that was the true explanation. You make you make a good point. Do you think that Drea reaching under and grabbing the advantage, is that tricky? I mean, it seems like you're in plain sight of all of the people that have not yet participated in the challenge, those that are waiting for the person before them. Um, but I don't really have a sense of how far away that bench is and if she can, how how stealthy one has to be in order to secure that. Do you think that, you know, I don't know if you participate in this exact challenge, but obviously you've been on the island before, not that exact island, but two different islands. Um, but how difficult do you think it was for her to grab that? So... That's probably a question that someone who has participated in this challenge or in Fiji would probably have to answer because, well, also maybe someone who has ever sat out a challenge haven't. Oh. Um, and I, I think that when people would sit out, usually, typically, they'd be pretty far away. But if it's in a water challenge and they're they're sitting out there so they can see the action, it's hard to know. But also, people are so focused on the challenge that it's hard to imagine looking away from a challenge that you are actively participating in to look at someone who's sitting out. Even though now, if I ever am to go back on, I would 
have eyes on someone sitting out of a challenge. Totally. It's like, I, yeah, I feel like if anything, at this point, it's like the second someone says they're sitting out, it's like, and I'm sitting there waiting to go, I would lock eyes with that person and not take them off. Um, so the challenge happens. It's a water challenge. It's 5-5. Five, five. Basically, they have to swim through an obstacle course. They end up on a large platform. And then it comes down to them scoring five baskets into a floating basketball hoop in the water. We've seen this challenge many times before. This is a, so anyway, what happens is Omar gets four in a row for his team, and it's really looking like they're going to clinch it. And they were the underdogs in this, being that Jonathan, uh, 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 is, you know, hero, Jonathan is on the other tribe, or excuse me, other team for this challenge. And then Jonathan comes out of nowhere and is able to dunk five baskets and win for his team. And thus, Omar's four baskets didn't measure up to anything. I want to ask you, I don't love these challenges that are designed where someone can come in at the end like that, often a man, and just finish it out for the team. It sort of voids the work of everybody else. I prefer when all five members of the team have to dunk one basket each. I feel like it becomes uh, much more of a team effort. Where do you net out on that? Yeah, I mean, I just don't think... It's super interesting when someone can dominate in that way. I know that, you know, Probst must have said Jonathan's name 17 times. I tried to count, but then I got really bored oh, yeah. uh, in in that challenge. And, you know, I – listen, Jonathan may or may not be a fine person. I, I don't really know. I think, you know, as the character on the TV show that I am watching, I really dislike him. And his fan base has made me dislike him even more uh, because they've all come for me uh, because I called out his misogyny. And I think he is someone who has a massive ego. If you saw at the end of that challenge after he scored the five baskets, won it for his, his team, he was about to hug his teammates and then instead kind of did like a chest bump and a dive off the platform. And then you see later he comes back out of the water, he's wet and he's hugging people to celebrate. But he's like, wait, wait, wait. No, this is not a team effort that I'm celebrating. I am celebrating me. Like, and and I find him, you know, misogynistic. I don't like the way he speaks to women. And I think the scenes from next week have like really validated all of the things that I've been saying. And I feel like, you know, very vindicated on calling that out early and seeing that in him. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I do what I don't like about the design of a lot of these challenges, especially ones like this, are people like him are able to dominate the challenge and feel like, well, we won because of me. The efforts of the other four people, no matter the advantage they had by way of like, you know, they were at the, the dock, for instance, before the other team, um, they had a time advantage, but like that's all wiped out by the fact that ultimately Jonathan won that challenge for the team. And so yep. it ends up just feeling like, all hail Jonathan versus the five of them going on the reward and saying, wow, how great is it that we all worked together to win this challenge? It became very much, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, our Lord and Savior, Jonathan. Yep, yep, yep. And I just but I do that. think that, and and maybe this is just my perception, but I felt like the edit kind of made you, you like, were you rooting for Omar? Because I was, like, I was oh, rooting absolutely. for him. And I feel like something is breaking the sheen. And we saw that a little in the scenes for next week with like this, like, idolizing of Jonathan, um, I think that finally we're like his, his real characters coming out. Right. And I will say when Omar had those four baskets in a row, it was so exciting to see someone who wasn't the obvious person 
succeeding at a challenge like this. I mean, I think everyone went in there in there expecting, of course, Jonathan's going to be good at this because Jonathan seems to be good at a lot of these physical challenges. And it was like, yes, Omar, like work. Like it was very, very exciting. And it was just a shame that he got four in a row. It wasn't just that he got four. He was really on fire. But then as so often happens with this show, Jonathan, you know, was able to come out of nowhere and just get those five in there. Because I kept thinking, even if John, even, excuse me, even if Omar misses one or two, he's still good. He's got some time. And that did not prove the case. Now, going back real quick to this reward, peanut butter and jelly, which, which uh, Probst articulates it as like a taste of home. I'm not sure why peanut butter and jelly is specifically a taste from home. It just feels like a very ordinary uh, thing for so many people. Uh, if you had to choose, you know, in the scale of great rewards, where where do you feel uh, peanut butter and jelly stands? I mean, you know, back at your time, the rewards were a lot less glamorous uh, than they often are now, especially last week. We got that that Applebee's. I mean, spread. I want a car. So. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. I'm just saying less glamorous. Like we had a GM sponsorship. Like enjoy your Applebee's. I'll enjoy my G6. <laughs> That is incredible. Um, Do you feel like peanut butter and jelly? Do you feel like that's a good food reward? So here's the weird thing I'll tell you. And listen, I I like peanut butter. I'm certainly not a not not in the Drea camp. I like peanut butter. I like peanut butter and jelly. Um, When I was on Survivor, I craved peanut butter in like a weird way. Like it was like the thing that you thought about. Maybe it's because it's like salty and has protein. I don't know. But when you're starving, I would dream about peanut butter out there. I would like phantom smell it in my sleep. Like I, I, I mean, peanut butter is like such a huge thing out there. Remember Heidi and Jenna like strip oh, naked for yeah. peanut butter in a challenge. And like there's something weird about how much you want peanut butter out there. So it would have been Uh, a taste of home. I think I sat down and ate an entire jar of peanut butter with a spoon after I got voted out of Vanuatu. Mm. It's funny you mentioned the the Heidi and Jenna moment because I feel like if anything, rather than a taste of home, it's just like a survivor staple. Um, Peanut butter, but wasn't that, that was peanut butter and chocolate, right? Peanut butter and chocolate, yeah. Mm. See, that to me, it's like, I feel like we're we're, we're erasing our history with this show. It's like, let's, I like when they sort of nod to the past, but one thing very evident about this new era, drop the four, keep the, I guess, two at this point. One thing very evident is that Survivor is seems very keen to not lean into its past. There's even been conversation about any upcoming all-star seasons not dipping earlier than season 41. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of the way this show, in my mind, but tell me if you feel differently, seems to erase its legacy? I mean, they can say they're doing that all they want, but yet, like, look at the seasons that they are putting on Netflix. Season 16 is on Netflix right now. I will make a hard sell that it is, not just because I was on it, one of the best seasons that has ever aired of Survivor. Um, And that's one of the two seasons on Netflix right now. So they are still leaning into their history. They know where their bread is buttered, if that's what the saying goes. I don't know. I mean, like... You know, people who got into Survivor during the pandemic watched old seasons and fell in love with the show. And uh, I think even if they say those things, you know, they're trying to make the new kids feel good. Now, I just need Vanuatu on Netflix because, I mean, Sean and I both have been beating the Vanuatu drum for some time. But of those early seasons that don't get their shine, we just love Vanuatu. Do you feel I like- know. I, you know what's funny? I don't think they'll ever put it on Netflix because it's not in HD. We were the last right, season not right, in right, HD. Right. 
And mm. so people will watch it and they'll be like, I can't watch this grainy old TV show. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I like. I like that like sort of antique quality about the early seasons. I know. Um, so back to this episode, post-reward, we get a package that's Omar talking about how he's really running the game right now. He feels like he is part of this majority alliance, but he also has the side deals with all the people on the bottom, like Tori, like Marianne, like Chanel. And as such, he feels like he's the most plugged in. He says information is the most powerful thing in the game right now, which I would, you know, venture to say information is the most powerful thing in the game always. Um, and this is not a new concept, but where do you think Omar stands right now in terms of, do you think that his portrayal of information is accurate? Do you think he really has everything unlocked or is there a world in which he actually sits at the bottom of that majority alliance and is not aware of it? Ooh, that's such an interesting question. I think that... We're not being shown anything that contradicts anything that he's saying. So we're being shown conversations where people are confiding in him, where people are revealing things to him, where people are seemingly uh, feel very close to him. And he's getting a lot of like back in the edgic days we'd call uh, SPV, you know, second person visibility, where other people are talking about him, people like Mike, you know, other folks, and they're saying positive things about him. So I would take what he says at face value, uh, given that we're not seeing anything that contradicts it, which is why I think he's getting such a strong winner at it. And it's so interesting because I kind of think that the, I, I mean, I've always thought the journeys and the risk your vote, whatever, is so stupid. But that journey that he took with Chanel may have like caused him to win and caused her to lose. Like it may have been the thing that tanked her game and um, that won him the game potentially and down the road. What's so interesting about that too is like he is down a vote right now. So outside of the fact that he really seems to be running things, he seemingly has maybe the least power out of anyone on the island right now. But to his point about knowledge is power, he is utilizing that knowledge as his ultimate power, you know, in spite of the fact that But he, I think it was it turned out better for him because right. he didn't have a vote. Completely. It's like in that sense, he is the least threatening to all of these people. So therefore, they're not even considering him in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how are you feeling about Lindsay? She's getting a bit of a purple edit. We got a little bit of her um, later on at Tribal, but she seems to be out of this cast, the person that we've heard from the least. My sense is that she's very much in with Jonathan um, and she seems to be like Jonathan's right hand person. But I don't have a sense of... Lindsay's strategy or just who Lindsay is because she's not getting much airtime. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I hope that this isn't a situation like what they, you know, did with Heather or something where all of a sudden, very late in the season, we find out that she's got the closest relationship with this one person. And we're like, wait, what? Why didn't you show us that? Um, and I like Lindsay. I think she's she seems great. And so I wish we were seeing more of her. Um, but yeah, I don't know why she's she's getting this very, very under the radar edit. So tell me this. So say that, you know, you're on the island right now and there's this seven person alliance and then there are seemingly these, these three or four people that are sort of on the outs and say that you're amongst the seven person alliance. How do you handle that? We've seen past seasons in which you have a dominant alliance and someone early on says, this is not going to last. I want to blow it up now. 
and sort of align myself with, with the outsiders and take a few of the people from this alliance and sort of make a power move that I can bring to the end. Or you can stay strong with the seven and sort of say, hey, we're going to take us seven. We're going to get us to the final seven. And then from there, we'll see where, where, the, where the cards, you know, or the deck, whatever, however, however things stack out or shake out or whatever. Um, if you were within that seven, how would you play it? So, you know, what's so funny to me is the, the first of all, the complete misuse of the word uh, paranoia or paranoid, because it's not paranoia if they are out to get you. And, you know, I think that we saw some of the, the scrambling going on from people who were outside of the alliance potentially and and the people who are solid within the the seven should stick with the seven and then figure out if at eight or at not you know if you are not the person being targeted if you are not getting your name written down I would say don't rock the boat you know it was I I turned on my alliance only when I had to because they were literally going to vote me out so I I think if they had stayed solid, I would have stayed solid with them and they might have picked me off because I was at the bottom of that alliance. But I would have stuck with them uh, if the situation weren't that they were coming after me. So I, I, I don't know. I think for me, like I am a, I'm very loyal. I think I do get paranoid, but paranoia is justified or isn't paranoia at all when people are trying to vote you out. Um but, you know, in a majority alliance, when there are 11 people left, I don't really see the reason to be like, sure, let's pick up a bunch of stragglers rather than stick with the alliance that you are solidly a part of. Right. And you mentioned justified paranoia, which brings me to the topic of Romeo, because one thing I kept thinking watching his paranoia develop was it's justified paranoia. He is being targeted by many people. And so he's doing his due diligence, which is going around to the people that he thinks he's close to and expressing how he feels. And I just, it seemed to be portrayed in a way that like his paranoia was going to be his downfall, which I completely understand that. But there also is the argument that he's expressing his real feelings and there's a reason that he feels that way. How do you think, do you think Romeo could have handled that situation better? I mean, ultimately what we saw was his paranoia and Chanel's calm didn't do anything to sway the vote. Um, but do you think he should have kept his emotions more on lock? I mean, it's, I think it's so easy for people at home to be like, oh, don't like run around and talk to all these people. Like, don't be paranoid, blah, blah, blah. But like, he was left out of the last vote. He was about to be left out of this vote. He got one vote fewer than the person who was actually voted out. He was doing the right thing. Like, you need to then have those conversations and make sure that people are not writing your name down and go around and be, you know... In most circumstances, that's not going to be the thing that gets you voted out. Either you're already getting voted out or you're not. But like you being like, let me just go double check. You know, there were times when my like justified paranoia because people were coming after me saved me. You know, like there was a time when someone was like, oh, well, I promised this person I wouldn't write their name down. So I was just going to vote you. I'm like, other people are voting me. Don't vote me. If you put my <laughs> name down, I might go home, you know, and, and talk to people out of voting for me. So you know, I, I understand like the, the like how annoying it is to have someone who's like constantly running around and making sure of things. But like Romeo was completely justified. Um, 
you know, high, high was, was way harsh. Well, high has been very harsh. And I, I spoke about this on our last episode, but any sense of high and Romeo connecting about, you know, their both being gay men, um, that I, it felt like that was a nice scene last episode, but it didn't seem to be one of those moments of like, oh, we're connected about something outside the game and therefore it's going to bond us within the game. It became very apparent that high was not going to be moving forward with, with Romeo in any way as far as bringing him into the Alliance. Let's talk about Drea, though. So Drea comes back to the island after the reward challenge, and she opens up her Beware Advantage. And this was actually something we did not see in Season 41, where it tells her to go to the water well and, I believe, take five or ten paces or something. She does that. She uncovers what looks like, you know, some sort of pipe into the ground, and it turns out that there's a bunch of red liquid that she has to reach her hand into in order to get her reward. And so her hand is covered in what, you know, looks like blood. She opens up the reward. I believe she gets a uh, knowledge is power advantage, which which we saw last season, which a lot of people have issue with, which essentially she is able to point to a player at tribal council and ask them what they have. And if they have uh, any advantage whatsoever, she is then able to steal that from them. My first question, she's covered in this red blood. She goes over to the well and she starts putting the well water on her. Um, and later we see that she did not get all of the fake blood off of her. Why not go into the ocean? I have no idea. Go in the ocean, use some freaking sand to exfoliate that. Yeah. Like, get that off of you. You know, sometimes maybe she would have had to walk past camp and people would have been like, why are you going in the water? Like, y- y- the weird thing about Survivor. And granted, they have in another, in another case of this is easier now than it was back in the day, they oh, they seem to have so many different outfits. They have a bunch of clothes. I had one one item of clothing. I had one bathing suit, one tank top, one pair of shorts, one pair of pants. That was it. And if you and you were constantly trying to make sure that your clothes were dry, so going in the water on like any time later than like noon, like you know early in the day, we didn't have clocks, whatever, but. Um, was a very big deal because you'd be like, wait, my bathing suit won't be dry or I, I, my shorts won't be dry in time for bed. Like you have to make sure that your clothes are dry. So going in the water isn't just like going in the water, like, you know, and, and then people might have questions and, you know, clearly she did what she thought was the best thing, but did not do a good enough job and then answered it in such a sketchy way that, um, you know, anti-vaxxer Tori decided to <laughs> out her. Anti-vaxxer Tori. I know. It's really shifted. I I thought I was like really here for her this season because she brought a level of chaos in the early episodes that I really liked. But sometimes you learn something about someone outside the game and it completely... I learned about Joe Anglum um, being a big Trumper before I watched his final season. And I was a big fan of his before learning that. And it completely tainted my experience of him. And there are certain players that I come to like them so much outside of the game like Ozzy, for instance, that when I watch their later seasons, even when they're not playing the best game, I'm just sort of like, listen, I'm all in. But yes, Tori, anti-vaxxer Tori, yes. Now, Drea, what's interesting, I thought she could have just been like, oh, this is real blood. I cut myself. Like, she went right to the paint. I was like, just be like, oh, yeah, I cut myself. I'm okay, but this was a little blood. I, like, walked into a branch. I I don't know. Just say it's blood. Right. 
So let's talk about Drea for a second because with this, I can't even count how many she adva- how many advantages and idols and things she has at this point. Oh my god! And- someone tweeted she has a full Etsy shop worth of memorabilia. Truly, this truly, she really does. I'm not sure if we've ever seen anyone with quite an artillery like this before. I also don't know if we've ever had this many options by way of advantages. But <sighs> do you think, given everything she has? Is there, it just seems like she's secured herself in the final three, if nothing else, just by way of all of the stuff that she has, in addition to this knowledge's power, which essentially is such where you can strip another person of their power. Um, And she has the awareness of the two other people that have the idol. So I actually think this knowledge is power advantage doesn't quite work as well as it might have been, you know, conceived because of the fact that she's at, like, she's at a, huge advantage in that she has a hundred percent knowledge right she essentially has a steal an idol right whereas it's not just sort of like she doesn't have to guess who might have it she has the information already uh, and right. can take it the question will be if she tells anyone she has it right then they can do to her what they did to leon uh yeah wasn't it liana Yes, yes, yes. Who it's had 41. It? it was Liana, right? Yes, I was like, yes. am I losing my mind? Yeah. And then and then basically Stupid. trick yes. her into thinking someone else has it and then hand it to someone else and kind of play this thing where it's like, go fish, but like you can pass off your ace of diamonds or whatever. Right. Which is why I really, I want Marianne to find someone, like an ally that she can sort of final two with, because I feel like Marianne needs that person that she could give her her idol over to in a situation like that. And it, from what we've seen so far, she very well could have that, but it doesn't seem like Marianne has someone that she's like really ingratiated herself with. Um, but yes, I hope that that would be the case. And to your point, yes, it's like that knowledge can actually backfire in the end. Um, but do you think that it seems as though Drea, and you know, we said Omar earlier, Absolutely. but it seems like Drea's in a great spot. Oh, there, I think that, listen, maybe we will be proven wrong and it will be a come out of nowhere winner like last season who is just being wildly under edited. But I think that right now, Drea, Omer, and uh, Hi are getting such clear has to be one of those three that wins this. Otherwise, the season is just like it, it, my mind will be blown if it's not one of the three of them. I also feel like the show itself is not keen to have two seasons in a row where the winner is not given a strong edit. So I feel like if anything, they would go out of their way to make sure to prominently feature the winner in response to some of the backlash in the last season. And wouldn't you say, I mean, Drea, with all of these advantages, if she uses them strategically, like she could easily make a very strong case at the end as to why she should win. Omer with his, you know, lack of advantage and then, you know, losing a vote and really, but still being able to whip votes in the direction and form these social bonds and relationships. And High really playing like puppet master, kingmaker, making these decisions, like kind of directing everything. I think any one of the three of them, um, has a very strong case for winning and, you know, would be like a satisfying winner pick. But also I'm like, oh, but that's kind of disappointing that like, here we are just past the merge episode, juror number one, that's it. And I already know that it's going to be one of these three people that wins. But if those three do end up as our our three finalists, I do think think it's exciting to have three people with very different perspectives and gameplays and how they they won't all be finalists. 
Perhaps not, but like if they were, even as you just pointed out, it's like you have Drea sort of with all this power and using that power to get to the final three. You have Omar without any power and having to use that argument of, I got here without any special anything. And then you have Hi, the puppeteer. I just, I like the idea of three people presenting their case to the jury with three very different, um, you know, avenues to the final. That, that to me could be exciting. But yeah, that's what you're saying. We don't, we don't want to be able to anticipate the final three this early in the game. So let's right. go to the immunity challenge. We have Jeff uh, back talking to the camera, saying that he's going to make a negotiation with the tribe uh, in order to give them uh, more rice. And basically he's saying right now, again, we have 11 people in the game. He's going to ask that six of them sit out of the competition in order to secure this rice. But he tells us he would be fine with just four he, he will go down to just four, and he says, quote, next season, the monster may have a much, much bigger appetite. So we get one of the few instances of Jeff referencing the monster that we saw in all of the previews for season 41, a monster that never quite materialized. What do you make of Negotiator Jeff? I mean, you know, we can't even talk about this without talking about Angelina, you know, OG Negotiator started this this whole thing and and um i think it's it's something that there is some more interesting element of of negotiating when it's going to be- benefit the whole tribe versus i'm going to sit out so i get to eat something which is all that was ever offered i think back in the day was oh if you sit out you can have this plate of food or whatever it is that you can eat while the challenge is going on. And having it be something that benefits everyone is, I think, much more interesting. Uh, And also the fact that then it seemed from tribal council, you know, Jonathan said, oh, I made a promise to the four people who sat out that I would not write any of their names down. And then someone else went one immunity. So essentially, you know, more than half the tribe was immune in his eyes. And he's like, we should all promise that, you know, and, and granted it was interesting because that was his original tribe. So I was like, oh, how much of a sacrifice is that? Uh, He's the one who said, oh yeah, we're four strong. And if it protects some of my favorites, you know, I can't complain too much, even though I would like to see him voted out. And it does seem like there are some cracks forming there. I was going to ask you about that. If you thought Marianne made the right decision in sitting out when she seemingly needed that immunity. However, my question is, do you think that what Jonathan revealed to us at the final tribal, that he was never planning on voting any anyone that sat out, he was not going to put a vote on them. Do you think that that was something that was perhaps negotiated in the moment and was just cut out of the edit in which as a tribe, they got together and huddled and said, hey, whoever sits out, you're guaranteed immunity tonight. I mean, it could have been, but like, why wouldn't they show? I guess they wouldn't show it because then none of those people got voted out. But if you think about the fact that like on the Aussie boot episode in Micronesia, Parv and and Jason had their hands up for hours, like on the, the bucket challenge. And she said, if you put your hand down, I won't, we won't vote you out. And he was like, okay, like they still could have voted him out. You know, right. it's like, just cause your tribe makes you a promise, like this is survivor after all. And so I guess you know, it would be interesting to know what the conversations were. And I guess there just wasn't time in the episode to know what they were with regards to what promises were made to the people who sat out. 
Was Jonathan the only point. one who promised that? Did the whole tribe, pro- you know, what happened there? Right. Was it like an individual game at that point and someone like Jonathan was feeling that way or was it a decision made by everyone? Because you mentioned Jason, I'm just going to pivot really quickly to season 16 and ask, um, who amongst the Micronesia cast would we be most surprised to hear that you keep in touch with? Um... Oh my gosh, I think it would not surprise anyone that I keep in touch with Amy and Jonathan and Sari and Yao Man. Um, Fair Play? Mm. Fair Play and I were texting this week. We love. (laughs) Of the six season 16 cast, who would you most want to see return for a future All-Stars if you had to pick just one? Suri Fields. I'm with you. Especially because of what happened with her to her in Game Changers, uh, rather. She and what happened to her it. in Micronesia. And Hello. what happened to her. I mean, give me a break. That is, Suri is like so far and away the most deserving non-winner of Survivor ever. Yeah. Yeah. To win. Yeah. Totally. Getting back to 42, we have anti-vaxxer Tori winning the challenge. It's her second immunity challenge in a row. She is the only person thus far in 42 to win individual immunity. It's a There's a circular ball, and they have to use two poles to hold it up. We've seen this challenge many times before. What I like about a challenge like this is it seems to be a bit of an equalizer in the sense that you're both having to hold the, the, the sticks up to balance the ball, but you're also balancing on a little pole. And someone like Jonathan, as we saw, um, his strength, his physical strength is not necessarily something that gives him any advantage in this challenge. Tori is in a good spot in the sense that she's got immunity for the second time. However, I'm thinking that down the road, as they move into this next vote and they have to decide between, it seems like, Romeo or Tori or Marianne, the obvious vote is going to go to Tori because of these two wins. Do you see a scenario in which Tori, outside of winning a third immunity, can wiggle her way out of being the next chop? I mean, Survivor's unpredictable, so you never know. You'd never say never. But I think she is very much on the bottom, clearly. And, you know, I don't understand why people don't study the challenges more closely because this challenge has a very distinct strategy and is winnable by, you know, a strong big man or a petite woman in any, like this is a challenge where the way that you hold the sticks with regards to the ball, like if you're doing it like this, your arms are going to get exhausted. And by like this, I mean with your arms at 90 degree angles from your body out to the sides. And meanwhile, if you've got your arms tight against you and you kind of have it in more of like a comfortable position, which is how both Jonathan and Tori were holding their balls, um, it's so much easier to succeed in this challenge. And clearly they both had done their homework because that is the way to do it. So if you ever, if you're listening to this and you're ever competing in this challenge, arms tight to the body, that's how you win it. Like do your homework, people. Right. We we saw this moment in 41 with Evie. Evie was able to successfully do a puzzle and they explained, I think it was in the confessional, that they said, like, I knew about this puzzle because I prepared for the season. I think my question moving forward into 43 and, and down the line is, is it 
or is it better to see a cast that comes in and are all experts on the challenges and it's sort of a matter of who's the biggest expert or do we want to move into a place where we stop repeating the challenges so much and present new challenges so as to avoid circumstances like this? And I think both are, are valid ways to move forward. But yeah, to your point, it continues to surprise me. Or we had this moment earlier this season with High. Um, High is a vegetarian and he wasn't sure what he was going to do. And it's like, you're playing Survivor. Hadn't, you, hadn't that been a consideration before you came out here that there would likely be rewards that would be meat that might not have something that you can eat or uh you're not going to get protein if you're not eating fish from the ocean um it continues to boggle my mind how much people seem to be uh not clued into this game 20 plus years later um yep but that that's that's human beings for you and i also you know i i like to see a new challenge i like to see something that you know people can't prepare for that is all of a sudden something that's thrown at you that is new and exciting and different. And I feel very lucky that I got to participate in so many challenges that had never been done before that were really extraordinary and, you know, very much across the board, very different in so many ways. And that we had to kind of outthink or like figure out how to strategize to to successfully complete the challenge versus just seeing a puzzle and being like, oh, I know this puzzle from having right. done it at home. Right. You know, I think it's more interesting to to see different things. But if you know they're repeating challenges, th- then learn the challenges. <laughs> right. Or even like going back to the reward challenge earlier with the basketball hoop, it's like, you know, I don't know anything about basketball, but if I'm going on Survivor, I'm going to step into a basketball court and try and learn something just so I have some background on it. At the very least, I can say that I tried. But it, yeah, it, it, or even, you know, we deal with this all the time with the fire making where people choose to learn fire in those final days on the island. It's like, come on to this game prepared for the final fire making challenge. But anyway. Yep. Going back to this episode, we go back to camp and we get more of Mike's vendetta against Chanel. Um, Mike is still upset at Chanel for putting that vote on him earlier this season, despite the fact that he too put a vote on Chanel. But yes, we can call it hypocrisy, but I sort of like this aspect of Survivor in which a player is this delusional. I think that is a makes for a good and compelling character. So I sort of appreciate the fact that he's got his eye on Chanel and it's not going off of him. Excuse me, not going off of her. They seem to portray the idea that Chanel is really calm going into this vote. Romeo is panicking. And I'm just wondering if you think that it seems like Chanel... I don't know if she could have wiggled her way out of this. I don't. I mean, obviously, her calmness didn't really get her anything in the end. Do you think Chanel could have scrambled and made something happen, or do you think it was an inevitable vote? It's never quite clear when you see, you know, they have to show that there's a, a decoy vote. You know, that this is the person who, oh, that maybe because of his paranoia, Romeo's going home. But, like, most of these things, and yes, especially in recent years, have we seen these like live tribals, of course. However, I think almost always this is all determined. Everything is like this. It's preordained. It's happening. This is, you know, they're splitting it just in case she has some idol or whatever. And so they have a secondary choice. Uh, but if you have a majority alliance, like like they've, they all consciously decided they knew exactly who was going home. Right. And... I wonder, I'll be interested to see Chanel's exit press uh, as to whether she thinks she could have done anything differently um, that could have changed the the vote in any way. But most likely, 
it was a foregone conclusion. Mike held a very strong grudge there. And, um, you know, I am very excited that Chanel's on the jury. I think she is awesome. I think she, you know, did not did not get an edit that lived up to how how phenomenal I think she is as a person. Um, and so I am excited that she's on the jury. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Mayor of Ponderosa. Little, right. There was a little uh, Twitter back and forth today between you, Chanel, and Tiffany, and that made me very, very happy. But I agree with you. It seemed like Chanel was not granted any grace by this cast from the outset. It just seemed like people did not connect with Chanel on the island. Um, we got that awful moment from the last episode when everyone's conspiring and then she comes to the beach and everyone gets really awkward and so I too am looking forward to her exit press and to getting to know her more and understanding what her strategy was going into the game. Let's talk about the sort of last minute scrambling that happens. High tries to shift the vote over to Romeo from Chanel after Romeo learned that his name was being thrown out by Roxroy from Tori and it just becomes a big sort of, you know, he said, she said, I heard it through the grapevine blog blah, blah, blah. High is intent on the fact that it's Romeo's time to go. But then Mike intervenes and he overrides High by saying they can get Romeo on the next vote. And we learn of this final three between Mike, High, and Jonathan for the first time. And Mike really seems to step up his strategic acumen in this episode by really domineering High, who also is, as we mentioned earlier, a big puppeteer, what did you sort of make of this dynamic in which it was clear that there were a lot of alphas, uh, to borrow a, a phrase used from Tribal later on in the episode, a lot of people trying to drive the car? You know, uh, I think that it's always interesting because you you really don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know if that Mike and High conversation really went down that way or it's just being shown like that so that as a viewer, you're not like, oh, well, Chanel's going home. It's a done deal. They're going to throw a few votes on Romeo, but that's it. Um, and I think it's just, you know, it, it's like you just don't know what, you don't really know when, you, when you're watching Scrambling what is really happening, whether anybody is really considering any other boot or whether it's just a foregone conclusion. Um, and I think it's... Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where where this all ends up, you know? Like let me ask you about High's decision. It seems like High's decision to acquiesce to Mike and say, you know what? Yes, we will keep the vote on Chanel. We can do Romeo down the line. I thought this seems to be a smart strategic decision because going back to this car metaphor, it seems like High recognized the fact that if Mike wants this to be his driving vote and it ultimately doesn't really affect High's game down the line, better to acquiesce and let Mike make this his big power move. But there's an argument to be made about the fact that High gave up his power in this moment and allowed Mike to steamroll here. Where do you come down on that? I think High has quite obviously shown himself to be like a very smart strategic player, someone who who clearly understands the game, understands game theory, understands all of these things. And so I think High probably did the thing that he knew would benefit him in the long run, where he would say, okay... Uh, this is not a moment where I need to be the driver. This is a moment where I'm happy to sit back and let someone else drive. Um, and and I think it was probably very, very smart on his part. He also kind of seemed to not trust Chanel. Uh, so it seems like these are people who he is going to vote out 
at some point or another regardless. And I think agreeing to switch the vote or keep the vote was 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 probably not that relevant to High's long-term game. Agreed. So we get to Tribal, and I, I thought this Tribal was a bit of a yawn. I, I felt like there was a lot of recycled quotes in this Tribal of sort of them trying to make this out to be a much more complex vote than it was. It seemed like at the end of the day, there are four people that are out of the alliance, one of whom had immunity, was not up for grabs here. It became clear that Marianne was not under consideration because because she had sat out from the challenge. And so it really became a matter of losing Romeo or Chanel. But being that we don't have any sense of Romeo or Chanel having any real side alliances in any way, there wasn't much here. So when we got all of this talk of the car metaphor and are you in the car, are you in the driver's seat, which by the way, I don't think there's a difference between the passenger seat and the back seat by way of this metaphor. You're either driving or you're not. You don't have any more Oh, see, power. I disagree. Oh, tell me, I tell think me. If I think, I actually think if you're riding shotgun, like riding in the front passenger seat might be more powerful than driving because you're the person who's doing the navigating, who's making the decisions. Mm. The driver has to be preoccupied with eyes on the road. But I think the most powerful position may be shotgun. Okay. Backseat is obviously you're just yeah, the rider, yeah. like yeah, you're yeah. irrelevant, you know. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this, because this was one of those times in which I felt like uh, Jeff was sort of putting on his, you know, I'm going to lead this conversation, but there didn't feel like there was much conversation to be made. And I just sort of wanted to ask where you're netting out on Jeff overall. Sean and I on this podcast, there's been a little bit of, and you know, we ultimately, we respect Jeff Probst, we can kiss the ring all we want, and we do, um, but there is a little bit of Jeff fatigue that I think Sean and I are feeling, Sean, I don't mean to speak on your behalf in your absence, so actually I'll say that I am feeling a bit of of Sean fatigue, not Sean fatigue, uh, Jeff fatigue, um, in feeling like he's not quite playing the central role that I think he has in seasons past, and there seems to be a general nervousness or anxiousness, which you know, one can understand this was a very unprecedented situation in the world and for Survivor, and there was a flow that the show had that it lost. How do you think Jeff is doing, and do you feel like this is a different Jeff than we've seen in the past? You know, I I feel like I've gotten annoyed at Jeff, that I've felt annoyed about it for a while, and I think it was maybe around the time when he decided he wanted to be a talk show host and not the host of Survivor. Uh, And so Survivor was like kind of a means to an end for him to become a talk show host of his own talk show. And I remember just screaming wildly at the TV during these finales, these live finales, where I wanted to hear from the contestants. And instead, he's interviewing a random nine-year-old fan of the show. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to freaking hear that. Like, (laughs) stop. And, you know, and then... Uh, you know, I read I I read some of his interviews and he basically says that, oh, the people who have the biggest influence on like the things that we've done, the twists that we've put into the game are people like Mike White, which like, sure, God bless him. But like, really? Like, stop, come on. Like, there are so many brilliant people out there who've been analyzing and watching this show and like Mike White is getting to make those decisions. Like, that's annoying, too. Right. Um, so... You know, I I I think Survivor is just it's such an unbelievable it's such an unbelievable game. It stands on its own, especially when there's a 
compelling cast that we don't need that much Jeff interjected. Like, just let them play. And I'm glad that Drea has collected all these advantages. I think she's extraordinary. And I think in so many of these seasons, we see really a lot of men getting all of these types of advantages in the game. And so I love that she has them. And I hope that that means that we'll see her in the end game. Um, but also, I hate all of these advantages. You know, I've always yeah. complained about right. there being kind right. of an overuse of these things. And now because one person has them, hopefully they can't all be used in the same tribal and have Suri voted out with no votes. Uh, I will never get over that. Um, but but I think, um, yeah, Jeff trying to like interject in some of these things uh, is a detriment rather than an enhancement of the show. It's also interesting going back to what you were saying earlier about some of the misogyny on the show and even looking at it for, you know, from the perspective of Jeff, how much attention he has given to Jonathan in challenges, despite the fact that Tori has won two back-to-back immunity challenges. So when you're talking about competition beasts and people who are really excelling at the game itself, Tori is dominating right now, anti-vaxxer Tori, and yet we don't ever hear Jeff sort of commentate on her prowess and sort of in the same way that we have Jeff fawning over someone like Jonathan. Also, and we talked about this last week, but I mean, you played with the great James in season 16 and there just seems to be, again, going back to this like erasure of the show's history, there seems to be this treatment of Jonathan like the biggest and baddest that's ever played this game before. And hello, James, but also there have been other big beefy men that have played before and it just it seems so strange how he's just Jonathan is getting this sort of like Thor regard from Jeff from the fans from the other players on the island and I just don't think he's proven that he's any sort of like physical threat that we've you know uh, the likes of which we've never seen before pride goeth before the fall <laughs> fingers crossed uh, it will be epic. It looks like already, you know, and and all the talk. And when people say, but there's no misogyny. It's just that, da, 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 oh, no woman has ever blah, blah, blah. And it's like, just you wait. Like they're already talking about. And, and I think that the fan base who has been loving Mike is going to turn on him rather quickly once he's now suggesting an all-male alliance, you know, men to the end. And the bromances that, that inevitably, oh, well, the big guys understand each other. Like we, you know, and it's just... It, it's it's like this is the stuff that is the unpleasantness of the history of Survivor. This is the stuff we should be not leaning into. This is the exact stuff we should be like disavowing and and putting behind us is like this toxic masculinity, this culture of like only a big strong man can be the challenge beast when anti-vaxxer Tory is the only person who's won individual immunity. Jonathan competed in both those challenges. He didn't volunteer to sit out for his tribe to get right. rice. He competed and he lost, you know, fair and square uh, both times. So right. it's like, this is, you know, this is just, it's the, the, the constant like idolization by by Jeff and then thereby by the fan base, you know, some of these like like these barstool sports guys who've started liking <laughs> Survivor and just cannot stop drooling over Jonathan. Like it just is like, come on. Totally. Totally. Um, So getting back to the vote, we have Chanel eliminated with seven votes against her, three votes for Romeo, and then Romeo putting his one vote on high, which is quite surprising, but it's clear that Romeo... Yeah, it's like... she had seven? 
Wow. She got seven, yeah, seven, three to one. Um, but it seems clear that Romeo and and High have not formed any kind of uh, you know uh, alliance, despite the fact that they had that beautiful moment in the last episode. As we wrap up, let's get your sort of, you know, let's put our glasses on into the future and sort of say, you know, you mentioned the fact that we think and we're aligned here that we could get a final three with Drea, High, and who was our third? Omar. Oh, and Omar, yeah. If that, you know, is there anyone else that you see that's in a, a good spot right now by way of getting to a final three? The problem with trying to analyze who could get to a final three means including people who could be very easily dragged to a final three as being the person who's like, who joins, you know, the illustrious Stephen Fishback on team no votes. Um, and, and I think that it's, that would be virtually impossible to predict. Um, but I do think that, you know, that Mike and Marianne are getting pretty big edits, um, and could easily be around for for Endgame as well. Um, I think it would be hard to imagine, given how under-edited she's been, Lindsay, you know, really playing a big role in the Endgame. Um, I had to Google her name as I was talking to you because I wasn't, I was like, is it Lauren? Is it Lindsay? Leah? Anyway. And, you know, and then I guess, I guess Roxroy's been in and out of, of the show, but like nothing so huge in terms of his um edit and so I, I really think that like the that that the Drea high Omer you know threesome is the is probably the biggest the like most likely to be there at the end that makes or, sense. you know that that one of them is going to be the winner okay two last questions before I let you go one there has been talk, Jeff Probst has mentioned the fact that they might stick with this 26-day format moving forward, which I think is just such a big bummer. How do you feel about the possibility that the 39-day game might be something of the past, that we might never see it again? Uh, listen, it makes me more likely to be on a Legends season <laughs> if they ask me. 26 days is significantly easier than 39. I, you know, I've... I've spent, what, 61 days of my life on Survivor, and it is brutal. You suffer every single day, but the idea that they're like, oh my God, like we've been out here so long, it's so hard. And then you're like, wait, it's day 11. It's day 11. Like, Francesca Hoagie has been on the show for more days than that. Right. <laughs> Love you, Franny. Um, but like, it's just, it's it's totally nuts that like, you know, that that they've shortened it in such a way but also that then they're trying to say how how unbelievably hard it is. Like, it's like overcompensating. It's like, you know, someone who who's like denying that, like like a kid who walks in and is like, mommy, I didn't cross the street by myself. Right. And you're like, like, you're like, why are you saying that? Like, obviously it's because you did. And it's like, they're like, this show hasn't gotten easier. It's still, it's so hard. It's harder than ever. And it's like, no, it's not. No. No, it's not. Not if you've cut two weeks off of it. Right. Um. So I, you know, uh, I, I think that the likelihood is it won't ever go back because they've realized they can shorten it and still have the requisite number of episodes. Um, but I just wish they would stop trying to pretend like it's just as hard. Right. I also think it's a big bummer for social game because I think there's a big difference in the relationships that you form in 26 days versus 39. I think that you can have significantly stronger bonds, 39 days of knowing someone versus 26. 
Last question being, you played two seasons that were island-specific. It was when the show used to shift to new locales. Um, Not every season. They got into a pattern of every two seasons in one place. But, you know, you played in two different locations. That stopped, I believe, in the late 20s. I could be wrong. Maybe early 30s. But we're now, we're on Fiji through and through. And I think something is lost in that. I think one of, uh, you know, there's that scene from Gabon. I think it's Maddie and all this. No, it's Ace. And all of a sudden, the elephant is just walking around behind him. And he realizes midway through his confessional that an elephant is walking around behind him. And we just don't get that anymore. You know, occasionally, we, you know, we have a stray pig running through the island, but you more or less know the elements that you're going to be contending with because it's the same location. Is there any part of you that misses that aspect of the show, the the changing of location and, and what that brought about and also the challenges that could be designed site-specific? Yeah, I mean, I think that something absolutely is lost when it's the exact same thing. And so you see the same place and you're like, oh yeah, I remember when, you know, Natalie Anderson was there or Sophie was there or this person, you know, and and you're watching it and you're seeing the same beaches and the same places over and over. Um, You know, it was crazy that season 16, we went back to where they were on season 10 and we kind of tried to remember some of it, but it was, you know, it had been years since they'd been there. And so it still was very new. Whereas, you know, having these seasons where they're just in the same place, there's nothing, you know, the rewards we got in, in Vanuatu, for example, like we got to visit, we flew on that tiny little plane. We got to visit a local, um, you know, we got to see the ceremony sleepover, you know, Chad drank too much kava, like the whole experience of being in a different place and getting to see the culture and and kind of um, put that in. I mean, think about like what Survivor Africa did and and how Ethan founded grassroots soccer after that, you know, like all of these things that are interwoven into Survivor history have been lost because it's just Fiji now. I mean, we had an earthquake in Vanuatu during Mm. the season. Leanne was giving a confessional and all of a sudden we had a freaking earthquake. Like it's, you know, the unpredictability of that, I think, is is interesting and fun. Plus, like, then it probably would force them not to repeat challenges as much because they'd have to be rebuilding them, you know, not just using the same thing. Right, that which I, I would love to see that. Yes. But yes, I also yes, think yes. that's a pipe dream. Yes, pipe dream indeed. Um, While I'm thinking about Vanuatu briefly, last time you spoke to Scout, Scout Cloud Lee. Oh, gosh. Um... You no, know, probably pretty recently. Like, you know, she 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 always calls me called me little one and she still does, despite the fact that, you know, twenty here we are twenty, <laughs> almost twenty years later. Um, and she, you know, told me how proud she was of me, uh, and the campaign that I ran last year. So, you know, my my cast was was and is like extremely supportive and everything that happens on the island is is water under the bridge, especially many, many years later, because you've gone through this this unbelievable experience together. Um, and and we are one big dysfunctional family. Um, I love to hear it. Except everyone, get vaccinated and trans rights are human rights and fuck anyone who disagrees. Absolutely. <laughs> Eliza, I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to encourage, I'm sure everyone listening to our podcast has seen both of your seasons, but in the event that they haven't, 
I want to say Run Don't Walk to watch Vanuatu, um, which had just so many dynamic female characters. And, you know, we we got an all-girls alliance that went pretty far. Things sort of came on. Actually, both of your seasons have really strong female alliances, which is really great to see. Hopefully we get some more of that moving forward um, on the show. Where can people follow you? Uh Twitter and TikTok at Eliza Orleans, Instagram at E Orleans. Um, and yeah, keep keep in touch, people. I, I love to hear your oh, I also have my Survivor TikTok where I actually talk about the show. I keep my tooth separate. So it's at Survivor Eliza. At Survivor Eliza, you heard it here. Thank you again so much for taking the time. Let's let's obviously touch base. We want to have you on as a guest so we can deep dive your seasons, but also let's touch base later this season once we see where things net out and hopefully we can have you back and discuss uh, what becomes of season 42. I would love that. Always so much fun. All right. Thank you again. Of course. <laughs> 